It is Wednesday, November 29th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, a group called Arkansans for Limited Government is working on a possible constitutional amendment that would legalize some abortions. We don't like to be told what to do as Arkansans. We know what is best for ourselves and our families. And that exemplifies or is indicative of how most Arkansans feel right now with with healthcare and with reproductive health in the state. Plus, reporting on violence. And even then, when you're speaking with someone, yeah, like we, we tried to convey through choice of clothing, through body language, through just the way we moved around the scene, through how we spoke with people, through eye contact, through everything. Peter Nikias has covered breaking news and violence for outlets like CNN and the Chicago Tribune. He was a visiting professor at the University of Arkansas School of Journalism and Strategic Media this semester. We'll hear from him. Plus, a new Reflections in Black with Raven Cook. First, the news. It's time for the KUAF and Friends Holiday Giveaway, your chance to win a gift from one of many generous KUAF underwriters, including Hillberry Music Festival, Spaceberry Music Festival, Opal Agafia's Ozark Mountain Soul, and more. Winners announced December 8th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Details and registration at KUAF.com. Fayetteville Public Television offers classes in video production, plus access to equipment and broadcast channels to share your videos with a viewing audience. Serving all residents of Washington and Benton County, Fayetteville Public Television can help people turn video ideas into reality. FAYpublic.tv for more information. Walton Arts Center's Starlight Jazz Club presents Tierney Sutton, Saturday, December 2nd. This jazz vocalist and producer is known for her arrangements, scatting, and swinging style, and will play alongside her trio with a selection of traditional jazz arrangements and holiday tunes. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, November 29th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF. Today, the toll violence can take on a city and society. Peter Nikias has covered violence and its effects for both CNN and the Chicago Tribune. He just finished his tenure as visiting professor at the University of Arkansas. And before he returned to Chicago, he visited us at the Carver Center for Public Radio. That's ahead on today's show. A committee has been formed to support a potential constitutional amendment that would make abortions legal again in Arkansas. Earlier this week, I spoke with Jenny Diaz. She's a member of the committee and also the executive director of 4AR People, a nonpartisan political education and advocacy group. Diaz says the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the subsequent trigger law that went into effect was a catalyst for this work to begin. The conversation started almost immediately to figure out what we could do to restore some kind of liberty at the healthcare level for reproductive choices. But it it morphed really because it has been exacerbated by this healthcare crisis that the state is experiencing where we have half of Arkansas counties without proper maternal or delivery care or even any at all. So depending on where you live, if you're pregnant or hoping to become pregnant, you might be you know, 50 miles or 60 miles from the nearest hospital or birthing physician. So it's really a compromise um, from a lot of different angles and a lot of different perspectives. This group is, and the, the folks who have helped get this group together really have a variety of opinions on the issue. But the common, I guess, theme or value is that 
we really don't believe the government should have any influence on the decision between a provider and the patient. Let's talk a little bit about the decision of naming, how you came to the decision to name uh, the group. It's called Arkansans for Limited Government. What led to the decision to choose that specific name? That's a great question. Really, it's a reflection of Arkansans holding a deep value or belief in limited government and then contrasting that with personal liberty. We don't like to be told what to do as Arkansans. We know what is best for ourselves and our families. And when the government infringes upon that liberty, we don't like it. It feels bad for us. And that exemplifies or is indicative of how most Arkansans feel right now with with healthcare and with reproductive health in the state. I think also the limited government element to the name of the ballot question committee reflects that when you interfere too much from the state level, you do things like tie the hands of healthcare providers to where now they feel um, they feel a lot of burden to be able to provide even routine care, or they feel that in instances of emergency care, suddenly they are stunned and having to comb through all kinds of potential legal ramifications, liability ramifications, and. That is infringement, right? That is infringement on our right as people seeking health care from their provider because we expect and demand that our provider put our well-being first. But instead, government infringement and government overreach is now creating a situation where providers are putting the ramifications of statute first. And that puts providers in this really contradictory space where they have to pick, do I follow state law or do I uphold my oath to do no harm? And so we're hoping that the name of the group will really allow people to see that, right, that there are consequences when the government extends too far into areas where it really should not be um, dictating what happens in people's lives. What are some of the main points of the ballot measure? I think, you know, when people hear that we want to have abortion on the ballots, they want to know, okay, well, you know, how long is someone you know, able to be pregnant before they can no longer have an abortion. So let's talk a little bit about some of those points with the measure. Yeah. So the language that's been proposed in the Arkansas uh, Reproductive Health Care Amendment, it specifies that the government shall not restrict abortion up until 18 weeks. So essentially that first trimester plus a few weeks would be a time where a person could get an abortion and not have you know, the burden of proving some kind of exception or giving any kind of reason. After 18 weeks, it specifies that the government can restrict abortion, but not in certain instances. So abortion would be allowed post-18 weeks in instances like rape or incest or in instances of fatal fetal anomalies. So, um, And that's defined in the language as due to a medical provider's determination that a fetus would not be able to survive outside of the womb without or um, even with substantial uh, medical intervention. And then also it would provide um, exceptions for not just life of the mother, but health of the mother. And that was a really, really critical um, factor for this group in supporting it because that, again, allows providers to have broader language to be able to intervene and save somebody's life without getting right up until that edge. And I know as a woman of reproductive (laughs) bearing age in this state, like if for some reason I wanted to get pregnant, I would really need to know that I would have a good chance of getting the care that I needed if something happened in an emergency and that I wouldn't be forced to be 
in a situation where I might almost die or get very close to that. (laughs) And I think that a lot of families, especially women who are thinking about having kids, and that's something that goes through their minds in this state. It's something you have to think about now that you didn't have to think about a year and a half ago. The chair of the group is Dr. Hershey Garner, who is a physician. And in full disclosure, Dr. Hershey Garner is a donor to KUA of Public Radio, but he has not and will not have any input on our reporting of this story or any story we report here on Ozarks at Large. But it seems significant that a medical doctor is playing a key role in this group as well. Yeah, and that that's intentional, right? I think that one thing that we really appreciate about Dr. Garner is that He's a physician who is willing and able to take a stance on this issue of government overreach and how it affects physicians and providers and also their care for their patients. Unfortunately, we are in a state where a lot of people want to be able to speak out and they can't. They can't do it because they are afraid of retribution and retaliation. They're afraid for their personal safety. And that has been true of a lot of providers we've spoken with in bringing together this coalition. I mean, it's really great that we have a physician who has the position to be able to do that, but not every physician does. You know, we hope that as we continue as a ballot question committee, that more providers will be willing to publicly join. But we also understand if that is not available to most people, if they're worried about their employment or whatever, whatever concerns they have for their family or their job or their safety. But yeah, it's, it's intentional that we center the voices of providers and patients. Our treasurer is an attorney who also works in the medical malpractice space, but we appreciate their perspective and their expertise, and we have to lean on that when we make policies that impact people in those industries. We need to listen to experts. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, the the things you've heard from practitioners, from doctors who have said, I wish I could say more, but if I could say more, this is what I would say? Yeah, it's... There is a lot of fear. There is a lot of fear and worry, and not just from a 30,000-foot view down where they get together and pontificate. No, it is a pragmatic daily fear when they step into those exam rooms or into the hospital hallways, wherever it may be, where they have to run through potential set of scenarios. And we know that providers already do this because that's the nature of their job. But Again, we would hope that they're running through potential scenarios for the best possible treatment and outcome for their patients. But now they're having this burden of running through legal ramifications and liability ramifications. So if you if you give someone a cliff, <laughs> they're probably going to not go right up to it. But unfortunately, when it comes to healthcare, you want your doctor to be able to do whatever you can. That's really what we're talking about is like these situations where physicians are collaborating with one another. They're worrying about this together as colleagues. They are leaning on each other for best practices, but it's uncharted territory. And unfortunately, the ramification is that the health care of individuals in the state will suffer because of it. The website for the group has a handful of personal and anonymized stories of people in Arkansas seeking care in a variety of ways and being unable to get it because of the current laws in Arkansas. Why do you think it's important to share those stories? It's really important because, again, this is a nuanced issue in the sense that abortion as a treatment is a very nuanced issue. 
unfortunately, the issue has been polarized at the national level, and it's been weaponized for political gain and for power. But in practicality, from a provider standpoint, abortion can be a routine treatment for different things, for a miscarriage, for lethal fetal anomaly. A lot of times, I think what some ends of the spectrum do is they create a lot of fear and appeal to people's emotions by telling stories about really late-term abortions. The truth is, is that if you have a really terrible diagnosis and you are late in your pregnancy, mostly you're just induced and you deliver early and you have to deal as a person with grieving that and saying goodbye to, to a very much wanted baby. And those can all be determined as abortion in the cases of a provider standpoint and, and what is offered to patients. That is not allowed in this state anymore. And so we have to tell these stories so that people can see it is such a wide spectrum and the language that has been proposed allows for some of these nuances. It gives people, it gives providers an option to step in and care for their patients in the best way. It's a spectrum, and we're not telling anybody how to think about the issue or what they believe personally. We're just saying, let's untie the hands of doctors and let them get back to work. Why do you think a person who is pro-life should uh, be in favor of this amendment? That's a great question. I think that if someone believes in personal liberty and limited government infringement, they have an absolute right to vote or support something like this. I also think that the ballot initiative tool and the limited language that is in the amendment itself, it limits abortion. It's not full abortion access. All of that reflects what most Arkansans feel about abortion, which is that it should be legal in some some circumstances. It should be available in certain instances. And then most Arkansans also believe that the government doesn't have, you know, doesn't have the right to intervene or be involved in personal health care decisions. So this is really a compromise. Again, it doesn't appeal to either end of the spectrum. And that's intentional because we want to propose policy and support policy that is going to benefit most Arkansans and that most Arkansans support. You know, every time I have a conversation with folks about constitutional amendments, one of the things that I always think about is is roadblocks. What sort of things do you think could keep this amendment from getting on the ballot or maybe even being something that's approved by citizens in November of 2024? Well, we have a lot of potential roadblocks, unfortunately, but also maybe fortunately. I mean, it's a pretty robust process, the ballot initiative process. Despite the legislature trying to make it even harder, it's already very difficult to get something on the ballot. We also have a new law in Arkansas that specifies that ballot initiatives, including constitutional amendments, need to have signatures from 50 counties in Arkansas, which is up from the 15 burden that the current um, constitution specifies in our state. That is under litigation right now. That's being challenged in court. So we will wait to see what happens there. But our group fully plans to canvas and, and get signatures from 50 counties um, to follow the current law. That's a big roadblock. Um, funding is a big roadblock. I mean, it takes a lot of money to be able to get your message out and educate, especially on these nuanced issues within this um, very polarizing topic. And to be able to reach people and have conversations, because that's really what this is, is 
is having conversations and inviting people to maybe hold that liminal space with this issue and think about some things from the perspective of other people, which again is why those narratives are so important to center. Really, it takes um, a sense of adaptability to be able to do this type of thing, and it takes a lot of determination and grit. And I will say that those of us who are on board are very determined. We are full steam ahead, and if there is a roadblock put in our place, I'm sure we will find a way through it or around it or to dismantle it. (laughs) Jenny Diaz is the executive director of 4AR People and a member of Arkansans for a Limited Government. We spoke earlier this week in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. On Tuesday, Arkansas Attorney General Tim Griffin rejected the popular name and ballot title of that amendment. Griffin says that the meaning of the word health is unclear when referencing the pregnant female's life or health, asking if the term is meant to cover physical health or mental health as well. Griffin also says the proposed popular name is tinged with partisan coloring and is misleading. In response to the Attorney General's opinion, Arkansans for Limited Government said in a press release that they appreciate the Attorney General's thorough review of and impartial response to the amendment's language. They also said they will begin work immediately with the amendment drafter to craft a revised amendment, and they're committed to supporting a ballot proposal that is clear for Arkansas voters. Ahead on our show, Peter Nikias talks with us about reporting about the effects of violence. Frequently we would, I mean, even before you get to a point where there's like a hundred things that have to happen before you get to a point where you're taking notes. Most of the time you, I would hang back and, and try to see is the, do I think the family would be receptive to my introduction. Our conversation just ahead on today's show. The new Museum of Eureka Springs Art will host a soft opening next month. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich visited the museum to bring us the story. The new 3,500-square-foot art museum is brimming with historic artworks created by more than 150 Eureka Springs artists spanning 130 years. Steve Beecham, who operates Spring Street Pottery, chairs the eight-member museum board. We currently have uh, paintings from 1890 uh, all the way up to the present day, and we also hope to promote Uh, artists that live here in town currently and be able to have gallery shows of their work for sale of which will help the museum as well so and also help promote the artist. Uh, In Eureka Springs our galleries are so small galleries can't give up wall space for six weeks for one artist so we can. The museum contains movable hand-fabricated birch walls that can easily be reconfigured to show donated and gifted paintings, drawings, prints, photographs, sculpture, weaving, and jewelry. Items not on display are kept in a climate-controlled facility off-site. Show cards, as well as QR codes, will provide rich digital details for each artist. One of the museum board members is Doug Stowe, a noted woodworker who's donating a fabricated piece titled A Reliquary of Wood. He says Eureka Springs has attracted resident artists for well over a century. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why Eureka Springs has been selected for a whole number of years as one of the top 25 small arts destinations in the country. Number one for many of those years. And so you can see the importance of the art specifically to Eureka Springs, 
There's also a larger story here to tell that I think has national and regional significance, and that's how the arts build community and how the artists sustain and nourish each other. Local retailer and visual artist Jim Nelson says the museum is a result of an enduring vision to permanently preserve a wealth of local art and fine craft work. The museum has been talked about in our art community for years and years, and we're all real excited about it. Uh, and it's going to be a great resource treasure house for from now on. That treasure trove now includes late 19th century Victorian paintings and triptych Eureka landscape postcards, 1930s Depression-era portraiture, 1980s countercultural imagery, and 21st century artworks. A soft opening fundraiser is scheduled December 10th for major donors and those willing to contribute support, followed by a public opening planned for early spring. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Support for KUAF comes from Little Wing, presenting Old Crow Medicine Show at the City Auditorium in Eureka Springs, Saturday, January 20th. Reserve tickets go on sale this Friday at tickets.thundertix.com. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville invites guests to make family memories this holiday season. Located in downtown Bentonville, Crystal Bridges features a full calendar of family events and experiences from art exhibitions to 120 acres of Ozark Forest with five miles of trails. General admission is open to the public. More at crystalbridges.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Still to come this hour, Raven Cook with a new edition of Reflections in Black. Today, she pays tribute to Maude Callan, an early 20th century black midwife, and she considers the continuing challenges for maternal health for black women in 2023. That's ahead later on this show. Peter Nakia's career as a journalist has included covering violence and breaking news. For years, he was a reporter with the Chicago Tribune, covering homicides and other acts of violence, and also reporting on the people affected by that violence. Last week, he completed a term as a visiting professor at the University of Arkansas's School of Journalism and Strategic Media in the Center for Ethics and Journalism. Before he left, he came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio for a conversation about his career and about the effects violence can have on a city. We're going to spend much of the rest of our show listening to the discussion. And I asked Peter how he became a reporter who covered violence. I grew up wanting to work at the Chicago Tribune, and I am from there. My family's from there and had a very limited worldview in, in college, and I didn't, I just didn't conceive of working anywhere else. It was like, I'll get to the Tribune and spend a career there. That's was naive, but that was the goal. And uh, they had an opening on the overnight shift, three nights a week. And it was, at the time, I was not through. Like, I wasn't like, oh, great, I get to, I'm going to cover breaking news. It was a foot in the door. Mm-hmm. And the way it was explained to me was, and this is this used to be like a common path into a newsroom, was you do well, and the, somebody will come tap you on the shoulder, and they'll say, oh, you can do something else. And so I thought, okay. I'll do this well. I've got to have faith in my ability, and and I'll do something else. And then I didn't because that was my job for years. And then, you know, within the newsroom too, like the just the political part of trying to cut your way as a young reporter is that I was not encountering resistance if I wanted to do street work. Mm-hmm. But if I wanted to do other coverage, then it was like, well, this editor has to sign off, and that editor, and this reporter, and that reporter. But nobody... 
I was not competing with anybody outside. Nobody wanted, nobody was raising their hands to, to go to shootings and murders every night. Um, so it was a mix of things, but I, I realized right after starting, like, I mean, the first night I worked alone, there was a police shooting of a homicide suspect from the homicide earlier in the night. It was chaotic. And right away it was like, oh my God, there's like, we're missing something that's out on the street, right? Just by being inside, you just miss, you can hear elevated, um, or I guess what you call a state of arousal and the voice of somebody on the radio. You can hear chaos in the background. You can, and if it, even if you can't notice it right away, you notice it when they slow down and you're like, okay, they were, they were in some heightened state. And so, so we realized right away, yeah, we should, I should be out there. I should, you know, I was calling 25 police districts and five detective areas every night, plus major accidents, bomb and arson, Marine unit. You just call and say, hey, is there anything going on? And like 24 out of 25 times, they'll tell you to pound sand. <laughs> but after calling twice a night for a few weeks and then longer, it, it, I started saying, hey, I'll, I'll come put a name with a face. And, you know, some some of the desk sergeants and lieutenants soften up a little bit and it was it was good for sourcing to be to be out of the office, and uh, it just became something that I believed in over time. I mean, it started out as a job, and it the more I did it, the more I realized there's there's a lot here to to untangle, and it's a it's, I, I think it's what some people would call a, like a wicked problem. It's it's tied up together in a hundred different ways, and loosening any part makes it uh, some other part more tight. I mean, it's just not an easy thing to untangle. So that's how I, I sort of backed into it. But once I was doing it, it felt right. It still feels right. It feels, still feels like what I should be doing. Of course, for some reporters at a paper or, or any journalism place, there can be something of a schedule. If you're covering City Hall, sure, you know what the hours are. You know when the meetings are. Yeah. For this sort of thing. Well, no. I mean, I was on a – so I was on an overnight, overnight shift. So there was a schedule. I was the person from 10 p.m. to 8 a.m. And I would routinely – I mean, look, at the time, it's like, okay, my shift doesn't start till 10, but what am I going to do from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m.? All my friends have gone out. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I guess I'll just go to work, I guess, because there's nothing else, and I'd read on the train and whatever. So th- there was a schedule. Like, there was my responsibility. I was a point person for the organization during those hours on my nights. And if something big popped, you know, you'd stay late, and you'd make sure that you could hand off to the next shift if there was – so there was, there was a bit of a schedule. When I moved off overnights, though, then it was a little different because there was still a schedule where we had we had shift work just to cover the, the desk. But if we were working stories that needed work outside the shift, we just work extra. And so, you know, like yeah, if you cover city hall, city hall closes at whatever time, right? I don't even five six. Yeah, uh, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Business hours, right? Business. Right. You cover business, cover, you know, five o'clock, whatever. And yeah, those reporters work later because they're wrapping up stories, the beats, whatever. But you know that you're not going to be walking into City Hall and, and checking some clerk's desk at, at 6.15 at night, right? For a lot of the work we did, we were waiting. We had to wait until people got off work to meet with them. And, and so we would do our normal shift during the day, and then we'd try to find somebody's availability. Because that's the thing is that people were letting you into their lives outside of their work, right? The people we talked to were not uh, talking to us as part of their work the way a police, like a, a a police supervisor would talk to us on his shift, right? And we may not have contact with that supervisor outside of his shift. Um, but if we were talking to the mother of a homicide victim, 
she still had a job. She still had something to take care of. So that's when we met people. And then, you know, community meetings, vigils, funerals, those happen when they need to happen. They don't, they're not, they don't adhere to like a nine to five. So a big, a big part of the job was just the willingness. And it remains the case, a willingness to be with people as they live and not so faithful to a shift, but more faithful to a story. You're talking to people who, whose lives have been disrupted. And so I'm wondering, is there a, is there a certain um, way you have to approach the interview, you know, if it's a parent or a sibling of a homicide victim? Sure. Um, I didn't – I know this is going to sound silly. I didn't view these as interviews so much as conversations. And frequently we would – I mean, even before you get to a point where – there's like 100 things that have to happen before you get to a point where you're taking notes. Most of the time you I would hang back and and try to – see is the do i think is the family would be receptive to my introduction right and if i thought they would then i would look for somebody to make the introduction and i would pretty frequently you try to find like a cousin or an aunt or somebody who's close to the situation but not so close that they're as devastated as the victim's mother or sibling but every but every family dynamic is different right so you can't say it as a rule it's just you kind of have to read people as you're standing there Sometimes it was the sibling who spoke for the family and said, no, I don't want, you know, I'll talk to you. I don't want you talking to my moms, whatever. That's fine. And sometimes we wouldn't talk to anybody because I thought this is not going to work out for us. It's just going to upset people. And, you know, some of those you file away and you try to revisit them later. Some you just can't get to because of the volume of violence. And even then when you're speaking with someone, yeah, like we, we tried to convey through choice of clothing, through body language, through... Our, just the way we moved around the scene through how we spoke with people, through eye contact, through everything, that we were sensitive to how upsetting of a thing this was, even if we couldn't know firsthand, and that we would do the best we could to be respectful of the gravity of it. And so I think that helped sometimes because people would talk with us. We did have success, you know, getting people to talk. But a lot of times people would talk to us and they didn't want us to use any of the information, which is fine too. But getting getting someone to talk was a, was a small victory. And, and then you can, you know, then afterwards you could say, like, I thought what you said was really powerful or I think, I think that's a, an insight that I hadn't heard or considered and it'd be, I think the city would be better for having heard it. And sometimes people would say, okay, I'll write it down. That's fine. And you take out a notebook and write it down. But sometimes they just needed somebody to speak to and the first person that asks them is who they're going to let it go to Mm -hmm. uh and we were there pretty often so yeah i mean the like the guiding principle was just to be kind to people in their circumstances and the coverage should reflect that for the most part it doesn't mean you like like if the kid's gangbanging and like he was shot as a result of that you still have to talk about talk about it you still have to ask the parents about it but there's a there's a respectful way to talk about these things. There's a there's an adult way to approach this, and it was not it was never easy. I mean, at the first few times, it's terrifying because you're like, well, do I really need to ask if the kid's in a gang? But also, if we're going to talk about violence, right? If we're going to talk about anything, you have to talk about the precursors, and one of those is how difficult it is to raise kids in the city, and the allure of, of the. The, just the allure of the streets to a, a adolescent boy. 
and I, I come to believe that the city is just going to claim a certain percentage of its kids every year. There's no that it's that seems inevitable, right? Good parenting, bad parenting. Parents in the city are on razor's edge, I think, and that it happens sometimes when a kid dies that people are like, "Well, where was the mom? Where was the dad?" I've covered a ton of homicides where the mom and dad were deeply involved. It's still Chicago, like it's still it, that's just the city, and I. Don't, I just try to keep my eyes open and be as open-minded as I could about every one of these that we covered and try not to go into it thinking, okay, well, if the kid was a gang member, it means the parents were bad. Or if the, you know, if the victim's a certain age, that means he must be gangbanging or whatever. You just, it's just, I mean, that's just good journalism practice, right? You just right. keep your eyes open, your mouth shut and, and take in what you can. Don't go into it with any preconceived notion. Just you're there as an observer. You're there to come to as nuanced of an understanding as you can. And every Everything you bring to it can muddy that up. It can it can cut off a line of inquiry. It can it can cut off the way you think about something. So, you you mentioned that you might say to someone who was just talking to you who didn't want it used, "Hey, I think it'd be good for the city." Yeah, to, to know this is that part of it here. It's like because some of these stories may these stories will hit readers who perhaps don't have the same experiences as the people you're talking to, and a wider knowledge of everything that makes up the city. Is part of this? Yeah, I believe that deeply, that the city is better off for hearing the stories of people who are hurting. And in Chicago, that's gun violence. It's dope, too. I mean, there are more fent- fentanyl heroin deaths than there are homicides, but those are all those are kind of tangled up in each other, too. But yeah, no, I believe this is like a core journalism belief is that of mine, is that we are better as a society for hearing the stories of people who are hurting. And I think because we all have some human thing inside of us that when we see somebody who's hurting, we want that person to not be hurting, right? I, and I worry about that being desensitized out of us or the, the willingness of people to other people who aren't like them in politics and in life, whatever. But for the most part, when people see somebody who's grieving, they look at that and they say, that's terrible, right? And then to be able to hear from that person in their own words what this is doing to them, what led to it, if it leads to some greater understanding of issues facing the city, if it leads to a um, greater understanding of grief or, I mean, there's a hundred different things that you'd pick up at a crime scene. Yeah, I think the city's better for hearing those things. Absolutely. We're going to hear more from Peter Nikias, who just finished a tenure as a visiting professor at the University of Arkansas School of Journalism and Strategic Media. He's covered violence and breaking news for several outlets, including the Chicago Tribune, and CNN. When our conversation continues, he'll discuss talking with people whose loved ones have been the victims of violence. That's just ahead on today's Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. We're going to continue with my conversation with reporter Peter Nikias now. He just finished his time as a visiting professor at the University of Arkansas School of Journalism and Strategic Media last week. For much of the 2010s, he was part of the staff of the Chicago Tribune covering breaking news and violence. During his visit to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, he discussed the sometimes ambivalent nature of public reaction to continued crime and violence. When you, you, get a, you get a young homicide victim who's on the, there's a sort of an age, right, in which above the age of 13 and it's like the, the city kind of collectively rolls its eyes and is like, well, that's just the cost of living in the city. And below the age of 12, it's like, well, that was a kid who got shot. That's tragic, right? And that's kind of like a pretty bleak and messed up way of looking at things. 
Now, it happened frequently. We'd encounter this, and there would just be no interest. It's like a 16-year-old got killed. And we would try to explain, like, the tragedy of a 16-year-old's life over the 16 years that led to this led to this outcome, that led to this kid getting killed. Even if he was a menace to the neighborhood and he was gangbanging and the result of that was his death, that's a, it's a tragedy that just takes place over a longer period of time, right? It's a, it's a tragedy of circumstance, of just the luck of birth and location and where you grow up and the friends that you make and a hundred other things. And if you could get somebody outside the city who would normally, or even in the city, who would write that kid's life off to think, okay, maybe gang membership is a logical conclusion for a 13-year-old facing those circumstances to come to, then you get people thinking about it in a different way, in a more empathetic way. Because it is a logical, that's, that's the thing, is that for a 13-year-old, for, for a lot of 13-year-olds, at-risk lifestyles are logical to the 13-year-old. And so it's important to describe those so that people can understand, like, this is, this is, how, this is how youth victims age into youth offenders who age into adult offenders. There's a, there's a path here that happens, and it's messy, and it's ugly. And if we're going to talk about addressing violence, like we need to talk about the effect it's having on kids and the, the circumstances that kids face when they're growing up. Do you only have, I'm going to show my age a little bit here, pen and paper when reporting? Do you have video? No, nah, so I, I, worked, I worked pretty frequently with a photographer. Okay. But, yeah, like I, I just carried a notebook and a cell phone for the most part. I mean, it was not... Everything you do can be a barrier to entry. Mm. So I was always cautious about taking out my notebook at a crime scene or you might take a quick picture out with your cell phone for social media because everybody else has a cell phones out. It doesn't really stand out. But a notepad's different because not everybody's taking notes. And the photographers were always really conscious about taking pictures. And so pretty frequently they would show up and not take pictures. They would just carry the cameras around and it conveyed to people that they were there to take pictures and... Sometimes they would, you know, they have to trust their judgment just the way I trusted mine, but it's different because their act, their work is more intrusive. And so they had to choose when, when it was appropriate to take photos, when it was safe, when it would not be disruptive. But for the most part, I mean, there were times where you have to rely on your memory. And mm -hmm. so we'd be in the middle of a conversation and somebody would say something and I didn't want to stop them because it was beautiful. And so I'd have to like half pay attention and half memorize what, what they said. And then as soon as they said I could take out the notebook, I'd be scribbling down something they said three minutes ago. And at the end, double back and say, hey, you said something earlier on. Am I getting this right? And so it was just like a – the process was – it was tricky sometimes, but it was, it was necessary to, to, to try and capture those things, but to do so in a way that wasn't going to be disruptive to everybody around. There is distrust of the media, and it's earned, right? Like we got to own that. And so I just tried to be respectful of that and try to make sure people knew what I was there for and, and what I was after and sort of what, what my background was when I was, when I was approaching a homicide to, to cover. There was a picture on the front of the New York Times last Sunday, and it was four Palestinian children who had learned a parent, maybe both parents, had been killed, and they're wailing. And the first time you look at it, you think, ooh, yeah. I don't want to see that. But it also weighs the gra I mean, yeah extends the gravity of what has happened. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to see it, but yeah. you think those kids wanted to see that their parents died? I mean, like, it's, I don't know, violence is a consequence of choices that we make as adults, and kids typically are the ones who pay the greatest consequences for it. Um, I'm sympathetic to people not wanting to be upset by the news, but also we live in an upsetting world. And, that, I mean, there's, there's a whole separate discussion to be had of would we show American children grieving the same way? 
mm. and the ease with which we are able to show dead bodies of people in other countries, but we don't do it here, right? Look at how spree shootings are treated differently than than terrorist acts across the world in terms of what we show in, in, in body and blood and all that. Whole separate discussion, right? But, I mean, you can't, I don't know, you can't cover... You can't truthfully cover violence in this country without recognizing the effects it has on people. We are like this. We live in a violent society. We live in a society that's prone to outbursts, that's prone to unrest, that's prone to spree shootings, right? This is just a predictable man at the university, at the gym. There's a there's a eight and a half by eleven piece of paper that's attached to the wall that has a, a list of things and what to do in those situations, right? unattended member of the media is on that list, uh, chemical spill, unattended child is on that list, active shooter is on that list. We've accepted an, an amount of violence, and we, I mean, literally a sign of our acceptance. We've accepted that a spree shooter or active shooter or whatever, that's just the, the cost of, of living in our society. It doesn't happen in any other part of the world, mm-hmm. right? And I don't think you can, it's the same thing with communal violence, right? We've accepted in Chicago, I mean, for a while, it was 450 murders a year, give or take 10%. It's closer to like 650 now, give or take 10% a year, right? We just accept that. That's just- Two a day. More, more or less, less. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in 2016, 2021, 2022, 2020, we're flirting with 800. And those are just the homicides. I mean, there's another three to 4,000 non-fatal gunshot victims every year, Mm. right? Like we've, we've accepted this. And so- yeah, those, those the use of the pictures depicting grief should be used sparingly, especially of kids, and the use of photos showing dead kids should be used sparingly, if at all. And you have to be conscious of the effect it has on readers and the potential for desensitization. But also, you have to recognize that we can pretend it doesn't exist, right? We can say, I don't want to see it in the news, it doesn't happen in my neighborhood, it's not an issue, but... Just because we don't write about it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Doesn't mean some kid's not watching the crime scene just because no media is there, right? That right. homicide that nobody knows about still ripples out because people in the neighborhood do know about it. Kids have to listen to the sirens, listen to the mothers grieving. If it's relatives, have to deal with the sudden death of of somebody they love, encounter grief that way. It's a significant Every, every time somebody gets shot, and especially every time somebody gets killed, it's a significant disruption in the lives of dozens, if not more, Chicagoans, right? Yeah. So if you take 4,000 gunshot victims a year, and then you count the number of people in the, the, the first social circle of that person, right? Immediate family, immediate colleagues, immediate mentor figures, teachers. You're talking, what, for every homicide, 30 people maybe? Mm-hmm. Okay, 800 homicides, 30 people. What's that? Wait, it's three zeros, right? 24, right. 20, yeah. 24,000. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that's just the first order, and that's just the homicides. So you're talking 24,000 people who are in the city who are coping with the loss of maybe not a loved one, but certainly somebody in their, in their near social circle, and in, in a lot of cases, a loved one. There are a few other things that have such wide-ranging consequences in cities. And so, yeah, I think it's important sometimes to show grief and to show the consequences of it. Final two-part question. How do you, or maybe you do, have rage inside when you see some of these things? And then how do you make sure you take care of yourself? It's not rage. It's just sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, man. It's not, I get upset sometimes, but it's mostly just sad. It feels hopeless. 
I mean, and I'm not like, I say that based on the evidence. I don't like, there's no, I don't think there's a political consequence for violence, right? There's no, there was no political consequence for, for the lack of change after Sandy Hook. Mm -hmm. There's no political consequence for what happened in Uvalde, right? There's no political consequence for 800 murders a year in Chicago. And so I know it's a difficult problem. Like I know that. I know it's, it feels impossible to untangle. I know that it's unlikely that there's, there will ever be a society where there's no homicides or no shootings, especially with the amount of guns that we have. But it's just heartbreaking mostly. More than anything, it just hurts. It's just sad to, to take it in and to, to see people grieving. And I, I, don't, I don't want to say I never get angry about it. But when, I don't know, when you show up to a scene and it's just grief everywhere, I don't know. The, one of the last things I did at the Tribune, there was a homicide with a kid. And we were close when it happened. So it was, I was, it was there before, like they were working on her and she died. And I just remember this feeling of like, like the negative energy, like all the negative energy around us was just, focused on this like one little tiny area in front of us and it was like time stopped it was just a weird I haven't felt that very often but it was like this I know I'm not explaining it well but I got there and I felt in like a spiritual way like something bad happened Hmm. and it's just an ugly feeling I would not describe it as rage but it's just a terrible you just look around and you're like what is like what is going on I don't know but look if we didn't yeah, the world keeps spinning if I don't go to that scene, right? I get that. I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not naive about like the reach and scope of the work or the potential for it. To, I don't think, I don't think doing the work is gonna is gonna change the world or it's gonna make people open up their eye, their eyes to like, oh, maybe we do need gun control or maybe we do need more social programming or maybe we do need whatever stricter prison sentences, whatever your politics are. I don't think it's gonna do that. The hope, though, is that through, and, and I don't even know if that's the role of journalism is to mm. to say, oh, we need these changes. I don't. That makes me uneasy, but right. I do think there's utility in us. There's like a benefit to society in reporters going toward those things and writing them as true as, as they know them and showing people the, the consequences of violence. Because over time, if somebody is more inclined to be kind or more inclined to see somebody else's circumstances than they were before, if they have a better or deeper or more nuanced understanding of grief, of trauma, of uh, street gangs, of the uh, police department operations, of st- staffing, of uh, of a hundred different things pertaining to violence. If they have a better understanding, that's a positive. That's a that's a ta- that's a tangible thing for me that I can say, okay, it was worth it. A lot of this stuff, if you don't do it, it just gets lost to the collective memory of whoever was there. But it doesn't get written down. It doesn't. And so I, if some, I would feel, I would feel like I was not on my job if I didn't go to those things. You know. Yeah. Peter, thank you so much for your time. Yep, thank you. Peter Nakias talked with me at the Carver Center for Public Radio during the final week of his time as a visiting professor in the Center for Ethics Journalism in the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. This is Ozarks at Large. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the Diana Fritillary is the state butterfly of Arkansas, but its prevalence across the state is dangerously low. 
because as a master naturalist, it was kind of embarrassing to find out that our state butterfly is is at, according to Game and Fish Commission's uh, last report, the Arkansas Wildlife Action Plan in 2015, I think was the last time it was updated. And the Diana fritillary is considered at a moderate to high risk of extinction. That's tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. This is Reflections in Black, and I'm your host, Raven Cook. Reflections in Black is a segment dedicated to considering the legacy of black Americans in the United States and around the globe. Each episode has been carefully designed to lead you to wonder, encourage you to research, and support you in ways to use new knowledge to make a difference in our world. Our first step starts here and now with the new episode of Reflections in Black. In 2022, I watched a documentary film on Hulu titled Aftershock. The film Aftershock covered the lives of two black women who tragically died from complications after labor and delivery. The documentary covered how the loved ones the women left behind had to continue to mourn, but also fight for black women who were going through the experience of pregnancy, labor and delivery. The documentary broke my heart. I've always dreamed of having a family, and in 2022, I was at a particular time in my life when it was starting to become less of a dream and more of a plan. After the documentary, which I watched with my mom, we immediately began to think about the incredible danger of black women in hospital care while giving birth and the need to find places and people when that time arrived for me to experience pregnancy that would support. We also wanted to share the information with other black women we knew to help them plan and often be strategic about birthing new life in a world often deeming us invisible. The documentary offered suggestions and alternative methods of care that black women may be able to seek instead of traditional methods, and one that stood out was black doulas and midwives. I had always heard of midwifery from my parents as segregation made the profession necessary for black people. Still, I had no idea of the rich history of black midwifery and the eradication of the practices by institutional racist policies. One of the women who built on that foundation of midwifery was Maud Callan. Maud Callan was born in Quincy, Florida in 1898. One of 13 daughters, Callan was one of the three daughters that survived. Callan would receive an education at Florida A&M University and Tuskegee University, where she took nursing courses. Married and ready to serve the community, Callan began working as a nurse and midwife in 1923. She also provided education to others as a midwife teacher in Berkeley County, South Carolina. Maude Callan would become an integral part of the community, teaching 84 classes and providing training to 12 midwives a year. Callan's important work helped her build a community of women to care for other women during an era where black people were used for medical experimentation. In 1951, Life magazine covered Callan's work. 
a lengthy 12 pages, created an opportunity for financial contributions to support Callan's work. Maud Callan would continue serving her community until 1971 and would be honored for her life of service until 1990 when she passed on. But her legacy lives on in the fight for justice for black women in maternal health care. In a 2023 John Hopkins School of Public Health article titled, How Can We Solve the Black Maternal Health Crisis by Annalise Winnie, the author notes that the CDC data shows that black women are two to three more times likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women, with maternal deaths being preventable. For several years, both health and political leaders have sought to enforce safety measures around racial bias in the medical field as it relates to black women and maternal care, even going so far as to create the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act. There is so much more work to do. Still, black women political leaders, healthcare professionals, including doulas and midwives, and black women who are birthing the next generation of leaders are committed to honoring the lives of the women who brought life into this world and were unheard with cries of pain. How will you support these efforts? Perhaps it's bringing awareness to communities you are in. Maybe it's becoming more aware of black midwives and doulas and places of safety for black women who are soon to be mommies. Nevertheless, the struggle continues. But until next time, peace. This is Ozarks at Large. Contributors to today's show included Jacqueline Froelich and Raven Cook. Our underwriting director at KUAF is Ryan Versi, and our show makes it onto digital platforms with guidance from Jack Travis. Matthew produced today's program in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. You can take our show with you anywhere with the Ozarks at Large podcast. It's found on all major platforms. Ozarks at Large, a production of 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville. You can also find uh, past editions of the show at ozarksatlarge.com. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for being with us. The Momentary in downtown Bentonville invites guests to discover art, food, and music, immersive performances and exhibitions, live concerts, food and drinks. There's always something new at Northwest Arkansas's Creative Hub. More at themomentary.org. The group Friends of the Berryville Library is raising funds for a new library building big enough to serve the needs of its growing community. For more information on the importance of public libraries in the lives of individuals and the strength of our communities, and how you can help, berryvillelibrary.org. The Ozark Society is a regional conservation organization known for saving the Buffalo National River from being dammed. Members across the state who love rivers and wild lands hike, volunteer, and work toward a common goal of keeping the natural state natural. Information on memberships at ozarksociety.net.